If you would please turn to Philippians 4.7. Philippians 4.7 is where we'll begin. We'll read this verse here once the guys get all the papers distributed. Do we have enough? We're good. Oh, well. Okay. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So we've been going through uh, the book by Henry Scudder, The Christian's Daily Walk. And we're coming really to the end of our study of that book this morning. And of all the things that he's been talking about, about walking with God, the conclusion and where he really wraps up the entire book is expounding basically this verse. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Peace, peace of conscience, we'll look at that a little bit more in a moment, but peace of conscience, peace in your soul, peace in your heart, however you want to say it, is the universal desire of mankind. Nobody really wants to live in chaos, nobody wants to live in disorder. We want peace. We don't want anxiety. We don't want fear. We want peace. And as he brings his whole outline, this much larger outline of what it is to walk with God, he comes to this conclusion that walking with God is the only way to have real peace. It's the only, Christ is the only source of peace. Walking with him is the only way that we really have that peace of conscience, that peace of soul that we so desire. So many seek for it in other ways. They come up short. But in Christ, we have a peace that passes all understanding and a peace that keeps our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So his whole final section is on the peace of God. And he is careful to make sure that we understand that there are two senses in which we speak of the peace of God. And so if you look um, there about middle of the way down the first page of your handout, two senses of the peace of God. The first one is being at peace with God. And that is the fundamental foundational truth of what it is to be saved, to be born again to have that application of the work of regeneration and salvation by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't spend a long time on this section, but just simply establishing the fact that peace with God can only exist in the heart of a person that's been born again. If you've never been born again, if you've never been saved then there really is no way for you to have this full peace of conscience and soul. Now, there is common grace. There are unbelievers who 
at least from every outward appearance, would seem to be relatively at ease. They seem to not have a lot of problems. They are not anxious. They seem to be quite tranquil. Well, we can attribute that simply to common grace. God does not leave everyone in a whole life of torment on this side of eternity. He does, in a very gracious way, give some a comfortable existence. But there's a sense in which that simply increases their condemnation because they rest in that comfort. They're they're satisfied with that level of temporal comfort. And the sad reality is that they will simply never know anything more. Because the truth is, unless a person is born again, they are at enmity with God. That's simply the biblical word, enmity with God. They're God's enemy. They are God's enemy, and God is their enemy. It's a a two-way street, and it's a mutual, and I'm going to use a very strong word here, and we'll back that word up from Scripture. It is a mutual hatred. So turn to Psalm 5 quickly. Psalm 5. Now that's a strong word, I realize that, to say it's a mutual hatred. And some would recoil against that and say, well, God doesn't hate anybody. Well, let's look at what the Bible actually has to say. There's a hatred in the sense, defined really in the sense of a rejection. There is a rejection on the part of God toward sinful man and a rejection of God by sinful man. So Psalm 5, look at verse 4. says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. The, the idea behind all that is a rejection. You reject the workers of iniquity. Verse 6 goes on, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. And so there we have a very clear statement of Scripture that God is a rejecter of sinners. God is a rejecter of workers of iniquity. So you turn to Romans 5 as another example. Romans 5.10 is the next verse in your notes there. That's one most of you have memorized. You might not recognize the reference, but you know this verse. This is in the heart of Paul's declaration of gospel truth. Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so we were enemies with God. And the truth is, God was our enemy And we were God's enemy. We were antagonistic to God. We were against God. We were ungodly. We were without God. We were not like God. We didn't want God. We were his enemy. And then Colossians 1.21, another verse that speaks to this, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. And so the simple truth is you'll never have any peace in your heart until first you know this kind.
kind of peace that comes through salvation in Christ. Without that reconciling work of grace in your heart, regenerating you, creating faith in you, drawing you to Christ in union with Him, you will continue to be, you will remain God's enemy. And as long as you are the enemy of God, you are simply fighting a war that you can never win. You, you will lose the battle. And so that's the first sense of peace with God. We have been, in salvation, we have been reconciled to God and there is now peace. We're no longer God's enemy. And God is no longer our enemy. Now we are in union with Christ. We are loved by Christ. God loves you as much as he loves Christ. Because you stand before him in Christ. So that's the first aspect, the first sense of this peace with God. But really what we're dealing with, with our walk with the Lord, and this is where he spends the bulk of, of his chapter and the bulk of his argument, is knowing and enjoying the peace of God. And so there's an objective truth, there, there's a legal standing between you and God. You are at peace with God legally. There is no more enmity, there is no more animosity, there is full reconciliation on both sides but now to know and enjoy that this kind of peace is the result of God as Philippians 4 says keeping your heart and mind through Christ Jesus this is a kind of peace that is I'm sorry, the first kind of peace is necessary to being a Christian this peace that we're talking about now is not necessary to be a Christian. I don't want to give the wrong perspective by saying it this way, but there are some that perceive this kind of peace as something that is elusive. Something that we can't fully grasp and obtain. And I would beg to differ with that. The first, you know, I'll flesh this out here in just a moment. The first piece doesn't have degrees in the sense that if you've been reconciled to God, there is no degree or level of reconciliation. It's not that Pastor Kimbrough, because he's the pastor and he's been saved for a million years, he's not that old, but he's been saved for a long time, He's more reconciled to God. He's a, you know, he's a preacher. He's you know, this holy man of God. He's more reconciled to God than the guy that was saved yesterday. Right? The guy that was saved yesterday is just like barely reconciled to God. And he'll become more reconciled as he grows in grace. Absolutely not. That, that's the furthest thing from the truth. There are no levels of reconciliation. You're either at peace with God or you are not at peace with God. There, there is no margin there but with this there is with this kind of peace the, the knowing and enjoying the peace of God there are degrees of that through your life if you've been saved for any length of time you, you know this by your own experience there have been I hope times in your life that you feel very close to the Lord your walk with the Lord is real, it is vibrant, it is thriving, and you have known seasons of great despair. You've known low times. 
you've known in your heart and felt in your heart a coldness, a distance from the Lord. And you lament it's not like it used to be. And maybe you've been saved long enough that if you were honest and think about it, you you recognize even the cycles of that. An ebb and flow, as the hymn writer says, our love ebbs and, and flows. But no change Jehovah does. Right? We that this kind of peace is something that there's a sense in which it's subjective and there's a sense in which we have a more full and a less full enjoyment of this particular peace. It is referred to theologically as what we call peace of conscience. It's a peace that comes from a daily enjoyment of the relationship that you have with the Lord. It is, it is grown, it's fostered by a deeper understanding and appreciation of the promises of God. That's how this kind of joy is developed. And so he spent some time dealing with what makes this kind of peace so desirable. And he deals with three particular things here. What is it about this peace that makes it so desirable to the believer? Well, the first one he says is because of the excellency of the person with whom and from whom it is. It's peace with God. It is peace from God. And so we, we, he breaks this down into these two parts. First of all, it's because it has God at his, as its object. And this is what makes this peace that we know in Christ so desirable because of the excellency of the person. This is the God of heaven. This is the creator of all things. You are at peace and you have a relationship walking with the one who is the chief desire of the believer. Christ is the soul's heart desire. If you're born again, you long to know more of Christ. That's the bottom line. You long to know more of Christ. And so it makes it so desirable because of the excellency of the person, but also because God is the author of this peace. This peace is with God, and this peace is from God. And God is the one who gives this peace, again, we've established only to the believer, but he gives this peace to those who seek it. But the promises of God are clear. One, specifically, is relevant in this context. Draw nigh unto me, and I will draw nigh unto you. God has promised that reciprocation in relationship. If you seek the Lord, he will be found. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. That will get all nerdy and all technical on you, but you study Hebrew and you learn about a thing called the nephal tolerative. And so that particular verb, seek the Lord while he may be found, the King James translates that word with may, but a literal translation of that would be seek ye the Lord 
while he allows himself to be found. That's the tolerative aspect of, of that particular verb. There is a time where the Lord does not allow himself to be found. When you don't seek him, what reason do you have to anticipate or to expect a good relationship if you make no effort to seek the Lord? But we have the promise, you seek the Lord, and he will allow himself to be found. And so this peace with God is so desirable because God is the one who gives it to us. God is the one who graces us with his presence in our heart and with, with his peace. The second one that he talks about here is because of its inconceivable goodness. And the point there is from that verse, Philippians 4, 7, or the part of the verse, the peace of God which passeth all understanding. It, it really is something that cannot be fully described because it's a peace that can only be experienced. And so, you know, how do we illustrate this? There's a couple ways. Um, turn up 1 Kings 10, 4-7. But while you're turning there, let me, let me just give you a, another illustration. You know, when, when we have a death in a Christian context, you know, we say we grieve but not as those with no hope. We have, we have hope in Christ. Now, you say that to an unbeliever, they understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. But they don't get it. But when, when a, a loved one dies, and as a believer, you have peace, you're not thrown into an emotional tailspin you have peace in your heart about the whole situation because you know God is in this. God has done this. An unbeliever, in a sense, can understand the concept of what you're talking about, but they, don't, they can't understand it by experience. You can try to describe the peace that you have in your heart. Even as a believer, you can you, know, you use words and you, you try to to enunciate what it is to be a Christian and, and peace of conscience and peace of heart and peace of soul, etc. And you try to explain that to an unbeliever. But how do they understand it? They, the spiritual things of God, these things are spiritually discerned. The, the carnal man can't understand these spiritual things because they're spiritually discerned. So an illustration that Henry Scudder uses is of the Queen of Sheba. Look at 1 Kings 10, 4-7. So this is a good illustration of what he's talking about here. So verse 4, 1 Kings 10, verse 4. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent, by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in my own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit, I believe not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, 
The half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. And so here this illustrates it, right? The, the Queen of Sheba heard of all of Solomon's wealth and you know, all this, and she's like, that sounds amazing. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Until she went and she saw it. And words fail to explain this splendor and this glory, right? So that's the way it is with the peace of God. It's a peace that passes all understanding. It's a peace that you can talk about, you can talk about it in theory, but until you've been saved, until you actually have experienced this peace, you can't explain it. You have to experience it. And that's what it is to be born again. That's the inconceivable goodness of this peace that God gives with those that walk with Him. And as you walk with the Lord, and you begin to get a taste of it, well, you want more. You want more of it. Because as you begin to experience the peace of God in your heart, well, what have I been missing my whole life? And you want more of this. You want a closer walk with Him. A greater enjoyment of this peace. And then the third one is because of the excellent results that this peace produces. And so again, back to Philippians 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, this peace that passes all understanding, here is what it does. In a sense, the results of this peace. It keeps your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The word kept that's used there in that verse is a word that we find outside of biblical literature uh, used in the military context. The word kept there is only used four times in the New Testament. It's used once in the book of Acts speaking of a garrison of soldiers that were assigned to protect a thing, to keep a thing, to protect it, to guard it. And that really is the idea of the word a prisoner would be kept in prison. That is, they're, they're watched, they're looked after, they're guarded, they're kept. The word has the idea also of something that is restrained. And so a prisoner obviously is kept in prison. He's restrained there in prison. He's, he's not allowed. So if I move this way, Stephanie can see me. If I move this way, Jan can see me. <laughs> so both of you are... There you go. That works better. I got people dodging their head, and Jan's going to have a crick in her neck by the end of the Sunday school. Um, a, a prisoner is restrained in prison. Right? He's kept there. Can't get out. That's the word. And this is what Paul here in Philippians is saying about what the peace of God does to our hearts. It restrains... Our hearts. It, it keeps our hearts. We can we can look at a positive side of this and, and bring in the word protect. It protects our hearts. It keeps it safe. 
if you will, to use the positive nuance of, of the word. And so our hearts are restrained from wild affections. Our hearts are governed by the peace of God. Our minds are restrained from going astray to worry and anxiety and, and frustration. We're kept this way. Um, the same word is used when Peter says that we are kept by the power of God. This is one of the main verses that we use when we discuss the eternal security of the believer. We are kept by the power of God. We are protected. We are restrained. We are, we are, we're not allowed to get away from God because we're kept this way. And so when we talk about the heart, what, what it is for our heart to be kept through Christ Jesus. When we walk with God, he gives us a peace in our heart that results in real joy, patience, hope, and comfort. Being kept by the power of God fights off grief and fear and distrust and despair. These, these places that our heart left to itself would go our heart left to itself would, would go into this tailspin of, of grief and despair. No, in Christ, another verse to bring in in this context, every thought is brought captive to the Word of God. Now that word captive that's used there in the King James is a different word. But every thought is brought, is brought into captivity by the Word of God. And this is all in this context of what the peace of God brings in the life, the result of the peace of God in your heart. You are hemmed in. You don't need essential oils to get rid of anxiety. You need the peace of God in your heart. That, that's what deals with the anxiety of heart. It, it's not external in that sense. It's the work of God and a work of grace in the heart to keep your heart in mind. To, to protect it. So the mind part, God increases our understanding of his promises. Or the Christian life is not lived in a vacuum. It's not lived in theory. The Christian life, your Christian life, ought to be lived in the context of objective truth. There are objective truths of scripture that as a believer you come to understand and part of your growth in grace is the application of those truths of Scripture to your heart. And as you walk with the Lord, that is what walking with the Lord is. A greater application of these truths to your heart. And so God increases your understanding of these promises. He makes them real to you by experience. You know, sometimes these things, uh, sometimes these promises and these truths are things that, you know, you can understand. Um, I won't give any names, but just recently uh, I, I read a thing about a family that is dealing with a very, very difficult situation with a severe illness in a family member, in a child. And, you know, they, they said, you know, basically 
by theory, I understand what it is for a parent to hurt for a sick child. But now that I have a sick child, I've never understood this before until now. Now that I have a sick child, now that I'm experiencing this. It's like if you have a death of a loved one, you can see someone else lose a loved one. And there's something about that that, man, I hurt for you. I, I'm, I'm sorry. And I, 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 you know, we say, I feel your pain. But we don't until we have a death of a loved one. Until we experience it ourselves, you really can't enter in fully to what that is. Well, there's a sense in which the Lord, by our walk with Him, and that's part of our growing in grace, He deals with the heart, He protects, He keeps the heart, but also the mind. And as we come to a greater understanding of gospel truth, of promises, we have a deeper security of his love for us. It prevents our thinking from going awry. It keeps our thinking straight and preserves us and keeps us from anxiety and worldly care. So he basically wraps up with that and then he has a section of just really some bulleted thoughts. And I've listed these for you. There's eight of them here. We'll just really just read through these as we finish up. But these are just really devotional thoughts. He doesn't expound them so much. He just bullets through uh, these different ones. And so the first one, peace must be excellent. Since God has taken it as one of his titles, Christ refers to himself as the Prince of Peace. Peace must have infinite value since it took the sacrifice of Christ to obtain it for his people. The only way that we can have peace with God is because Christ died and satisfied the wrath of God. We use a big fancy theological word, propitiation. Propitiation is the appeasement of wrath. Christ has made himself a propitiation for our sins. He appeased the wrath of God. And in order for us to have peace, Colossians 1.21, having made peace by the blood of his cross, it shows how valuable this peace is, how desirable it is for us to have it, because it's so expensive, it cost the death of Christ to earn it for us. The third one, since peace comes from an understanding and experience of Christ's love, it must be beyond all human understanding. How can we understand the love of God? The love of God is greater far than pen or tongue can ever tell. The, the hymn writer talks about where the sea's full of ink and every stalk on earth a quill and the whole sky parchment. We, we we couldn't write the love of God above. It would drain the oceans dry. And where every man ascribed by trade, etc. You know, we, we sing that kind of song. It's like, wow, you know, this is poetic hyperbole, exaggeration, etc. It's not hyperbole. It's not hyperbole. If anything, it's understatement. Because, I mean, we try to explain the love of God. But how do you do that? And it's the same way with this piece. It's beyond all human understanding. A fourth one I thought was, 
interesting, especially uh, to think about during this Christmas season. When the shepherds were out in their field, the angels shone, a host of angels, fear not, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. And then Luke 2.14 is peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so the bookends, if you will, of the ministry of Christ, the announcement of his birth was peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then you have Christ coming to the end of his life on this earth. So in John 14, we are roughly two hours from Christ's arrest. Um, the the uh, upper room happens in John 13. John 14, 15, 16, Christ is preaching as he and his disciples are walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John 14, 27, he says, My peace I leave with you. And remember, in the beginning of John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. And speaks of the comforter and the disciples like, Where are you going? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And the Lord says, Don't worry about all this. I'm leaving my peace. Well, it's the Holy Spirit is part of the manifestation of that peace that he left. But you look at, if, if you will, the bookends of the ministry of Christ is a declaration of peace to the believer. Five, peace is one of the principal parts of the kingdom of God. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Number six, just as the wrath of God against sinners is great and passes all understanding, so the peace of God to believers is great and passes all understanding. Number seven, the peace of God brings with it all the things that make a believer happy. In Christ, we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so an aspect of peace, obviously, is content, contentment. And in Christ, we have everything that makes a believer content and happy and peaceful. We have it in Christ. And then the last one, just as peace with God is inconceivable, it is also indeterminable in that this peace lasts for all of eternity. If you're born again, you're saved, there will never be a time that God is not at peace with you. God is at peace with you for all of eternity. Just as nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, you can't be separated ultimately from the peace of God that comes through Christ Jesus. So, trust the Lord will use all this and this whole study to help us all in our walk with the Lord. And may the Lord bless us as we finish this study. So let's close in prayer, and then we'll prepare our hearts for the worship service. Our Father, we do thank you for this book that we've been studying, of walking with you. We know that along the way we have considered the 
suggestions and opinions of a man, but we believe these suggestions and opinions to be agreeable to your word. We, we look at scripture and our hearts resonate with these things and we do desire to have a closer walk with you. We pray that you'll help us. We pray that you'll give us tender conscience and a great desire to perfect holiness in your fear. We pray that you would keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We pray that we would know this peace of heart and soul. And we pray that as we prepare our hearts for this worship service here to follow, we pray that you would help Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches. Fill him with your spirit. Bless us as we sing, as we listen to the reading of scripture. We pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.